Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Military Mindset for Business pod. My name's Pete Liston, and I've got to say, one of the things that I love doing about this pod most of all is to be able to just talk and tell stories. There's two things that I love probably the most in life. One is to travel and one is to talk. And it's a real blessing and an honor for me to be able to share stories um, just of the great human experience and what people go through. In particular, military mindset for business, yes, it's it's about business. Yes, it's about the military. It's a bit of a hybrid between the two. But in this today's episode, I'm really going to be talking about mindset. And the guest today, Andy Cullen, is going to really share some, you know, his story, his mindset, and the beautiful business that he's created as a result of some pretty interesting military experiences. So g'day, Andy. Nice to have you on board today. G'day, Pete. Thanks for having me, mate. Absolute pleasure to be here. Oh, thanks, mate. Uh, so a quick one. Whereabouts in the world are you for everyone out there? Um, I'm on the Gold Coast. So we're just up in the hinterland there, overlooking the Gold Coast. It's a great spot on a bit of acreage and uh, enjoying life, mate. Yeah, absolutely. So for people, particularly around the world, the Gold Coast is named very aptly. It's also surfer's paradise. It's an absolutely yeah. gorgeous part of the world. Beautiful temperature, waves, beaches, mountains. It's absolutely glorious. Um, Andy, what I'd love to kick off with is let's just start with the, the backstory of where did you come from and how did you end up in uniform? Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up uh, mostly in Sydney. Um, part of my sort of childhood was on a farm uh, south of Sydney in a little town called Taralga, sort of out of town. So uh, growing up around lots of cousins on a, a sheep and cattle farm. And then most of our sort of uh, childhood up to the early teens was in Sydney. Um, my dad actually spent 50 years in the Australian Army. So it was something I always knew I wanted to do, even from a very young age, growing up as an Army brat. I had uh, three brothers. We just loved, you know, mucking around, being boisterous as kids. And um, as soon as I had finished school, I was like straight into the military. There was no sort of question about where I was going or what I was going to do from a very young age. So yeah, 1996, finished school and signed up as an infantryman and uh, yep. went through, obviously, Kapuka and um, and Singleton and was posted to 6RAR in Brisbane. I so started to learn how to carry heavy things on my back. So we're talking, so 1996, by the time you get into the unit, it's about 1998. It's just before Timor kicks off. Um, did you get yep. one of those Timor trips in early? Well, it was interesting. I did a, a Malaysia trip early. Um, we were coming up for a rotation to Timor. Um, I kind of got the tap on the shoulder from the CO of my unit. I was causing a bit of trouble, probably asking too many questions um, and, you know, creating some issues for my uh, command. And my CO said, uh, got me into his office one day, asked me a few questions and said, mate, I think you'd be better suited as an officer. And I thought, uh, okay, how does this work? So um, he actually wrote me a letter of recommendation to RMC and I did the selection process and was identified as suitable. Um, and that started my transition process over to becoming an officer. And as a part of that, I had to gain a, um, a degree because yep. I'd come straight out of school, so I didn't have one. So uh, basically enlisted in university, did... Um, engineering and architecture and was 
sent down to Newcastle Uni where I completed my university degree for the next three years and worked um, directly in Second 17th uh, RNSWR down there, a Royal New South Wales regiment, um, and got ready to uh, finish my degree and go to RNC and become an officer. So I missed out on Timor. Um, a lot of my mates went, the guys in my unit, on the first deployment over there and um, it was something I, I regretted actually for quite some time. I was like questioning my decision to transfer across to officer and um, wanting to be sort of on the ground with my with my brothers. But um, anyway, that's history. That's um, I've actually haven't heard of that pathway before. So you were private soldier or lance corporal at the time, and you made the shift across. But you actually got out of the regular army and went studied and did your like supported a reserve unit got your degree yeah. and then they let you go to RMC to do the full-time officers course. Yeah, that's right. At the time there was a there was a system called the Ready Reserve. Um it was only available for a few years and I jumped into that. Um interestingly out of uh a number of the guys that I was in uh enrolled with or sort of joined up with um a bunch of us became officers. Some of those guys are still in today you know, colonels and half colonels, um, and we all sort of went through this process of transitioning over. I think it gave us a really good understanding of what it meant to be a soldier on the ground uh, at the bottom of the, the food chain, and it kind of created, in my mind, some really unique officers that had a greater mindset and capacity to um, empathise with and command soldiers, and it really stood me in great stead. So those years... Um, that I'd served as a soldier, I, I'm really thankful for because it gave me a great perspective and understanding of what it was to be a soldier and then how to command from that that perspective. And I do remember the Ready Reserve scheme because um, we are pretty close to the same genre. I must be, you know, maybe a year or two, year or two older than you. And I remember actually applying for it at one stage. Uh, it was a good sort of half foot in, half foot out. You could get your education. Mm. Um, unfortunately, at that age of my life, I had too many. Uh, hypocrisies and uh, alternate lifestyle decisions that uh, made my military you know, lifestyle a bit incompatible. And it took me about another 10 years before I ended up um, joining up. Um, so getting through RMC, you would have been one of these guys that, unlike me when I went through, like, uh, yeah, I know which way to point the rifle, but the drills and all of that was mm. like, you know, a bit of a challenge for me. You would have got through RMC relatively easy compared to the yeah. rest of us? Well, the first... The first six months was a was a cakewalk, you know, doing yeah. IMTs and the instructors that just ended up using us to instruct um, the yeah. other cadets, so weapon drills. I had all my military licences, like Rover, Mog and all of that sort of thing, so I ended up driving everyone around as well. And it was a bit of a curse, but, um, mate, it was, it was great. I, I really enjoyed it. I actually got some real, got close to a lot of guys in that, in that period at RMC and, settled into it quite easily the next sort of 12 months was where i found challenging as mm -hmm. as you know rmc academically can be quite um challenging uh quite confronting on some of these other areas like the military basic school skills and that sort of thing weren't a problem for me that the fitness wasn't an issue but i was definitely challenged um and i had to i remember really knuckling down i thought i was breezing through for all this period and sort of smashing it and then it got to a point where I went, oh, no, hang on, I need to actually really sit down and concentrate and work hard if I'm going to um, graduate 
through because I was seeing people drop off. We had large drop-off rates, people getting out for all sorts of reasons, injuries, mental health issues, um, medical issues. So I thought I don't want to be one of these guys that gets backclassed. I don't want to um, fail in this. I'm never going to fail in anything I do. That was my mindset. So I just, yeah, sort of put my head down and graduated RMC pretty high in my class, was offered um, whatever core I wanted, um, and I didn't pick infantry. Uh, sort of my last couple of years when I was in the infantry, I did this course uh, called Assault Pioneers. Yep. And um, Assault Pioneers, for anyone that doesn't know, it's kind of like your basic combat engineering skills, um, building, you know, uh, defensive positions, um, obstacles, wire, and the things that, that really focused my attention, blowing things up, playing with explosives. Yep. And uh, as, soon, as soon as I got to do that in the infantry, I was like, man, I found my niche. Like, I just love this shit, you know. This, yeah. is, this is what I did on the farm growing up as a kid, sort of making my own bombs and things like that to now I'm getting paid to do something that, that really captured my imagination and uh, and gave me a lot of joy. I mean, who doesn't like blowing shit up? It's, yeah, it's just absolutely. Fun. So. So when I got to choose what core to go to, I immediately went engineers. I want to go to combat engineers. I want to want to specialise in um, explosive ordnance and see where that career takes me. So, um, yeah, I was able to do that. Got a posting to one CER up in Darwin. Um, sort of on that journey, met my wife uh, as I was sort of leaving RMC, completing my uh, initial employment training in uh, Sydney and then um, getting posted to Darwin. So, yeah, I met my wife, Zoe, in on the Byron Bay, Cocomungas nightclub. Good place. <laughs> Doesn't exist anymore, but it was good at the time. Um, and sort of asked her to move to Darwin with me. So that was that was fun and got up there and immediately got deployed on uh, Operation Relics and lived on ships for the next four months. So I thought I'd join the Army and next thing I'm, basically in the Navy. That <laughs> was a, an interesting period. It's funny how um, we make these decisions in life. We don't know why we make them sometimes or where they're going to take us, but, hey, let's join the combat engineers. Sounds like fun. Um, yeah. Let's blow things up. But um, blowing things up becomes uh, a big part of your life. Um, yeah. Things that blow up become a big part of your life. And, um yeah, in in more ways than one. So we're up we're up at the first combat engineer regiment. Uh, you get through your platoon command time. Uh, you do your ship time. We're, we must be around two thousand and four, two thousand and five here now, are we? Yeah, that's right. So then I, they they were sort of saying, where do you want to pursue your career? And and I I was really dead focused on EOD. Um, yep. So I got a posting down to Sydney um, at six ESR Engineer Support Regiment who. Um, uh, sorry, went to 2CR in Sydney, uh, did all my training in um, explosive ordnance reconnaissance and worked through um, various things. I, I was posted to a few different units down at SME um, and through that period just got skilled up, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear defence, um, explosive ordnance reconnaissance, high-risk search uh, and eventually explosive ordnance disposal um, technician. And that was honestly the hardest course I'd ever done. I mean, I'd done graduated university, uh, Bachelor of Science, Architecture, 
um, postgraduate diplomas in civil engineering, um, gone through an RMD. So I, I had a brain I could think, but I'll tell you what, mate, uh, starting to be an EOD technician, they've got one of the highest dropout rates you, you can imagine, over 80%. Just the amount of knowledge and practical um, application you need uh, to pass that course is incredible. And for a good reason, you know, they, we got a motto, initial success or total failure. You either get it right the first time or you die uh, yeah. or end up horribly disfigured, uh, which is unfortunately the case for, for a lot of people I know. But, um, mate, loved it, loved everything to do with, with bomb disposal. And that ended up taking me um, to various units where we were preparing people for, de for deployment to Iraq and Afghanistan where the highest threat was improvised explosive devices and ultimately saw me deploy uh, commanding the Australian EOD capability in 2008 to Afghanistan and again in 2011 and 2012. So I worked with the Dutch and Australian forces in 2008 and then the US and, um, and other coalition forces in 2011 and 12. I'm interested, just a quick one, uh, when you become... Is bomb tech the right word just to keep it super, yeah. super common? When you become yeah. a bomb tech, where is the – so in a lot of careers in the military, you've got a big disparity between officers and soldiers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in terms of the roles that they do. For me, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like that gap is reduced massively because you're an ultimate technician. Yeah, unlike so we're all some of the officers. the same. Yeah, no, so me right. as a Ramey officer – I was not qualified at all to do what my soldiers did, you know, like yeah. mechanics, VMs, fitters and turners, all that kind of stuff. Um, they were the experts and it was my job to just guide the antenna or help the boss get what he needed done. But you're an intimate expert, just like the, the guys and girls that you're working with there. Yeah, that's right. So we do the exact same training. We qualify um, along with it's all in one group. There's no separation between uh, NCOs or, or officers. Um, you're all trained to the same standard. The only things uh, that vary from an officer perspective is the command and control element changes. Um, so we're talking about small-scale teams that are brigade-sized assets. So, for example, in 2008, um, we took a, a team of four, um, three EAD techs and an EOR technician, um, and we provided explosive ordnance support to the the entire battle space um, and tied in with the Dutch EOD and that provided uh, our support to all Australian assets on the ground. So um, it, it becomes a brigade asset. So you, you're talking about very small elements being able to move, separate and go out and do a job. So we don't have a capacity to sort of have just a command element that sits back and um, observes or, or, or commands and controls from a CP although there is an element of that, um, it, everyone is required on the ground. It's sort of all hands-on because there's just so much work to be done. So just for the civilians out there and for those of us that don't understand a lot of it, um, again, this is just a movie, but the reality versus Hurt Locker versus your <laughs> role, obviously yeah. it's a movie, it's a movie, um, but yeah. you know, for the layman, is this the kind of thing we're talking about? Oh, look, yeah, it's a it's a... Classic Hollywood uh, depiction of a of a job, you know. Um, to to put it into reality, in Afghanistan, we very very rarely would even don an EOD suit. Um, mm. 
because they protect you from one kilo of explosive at one metre, whereas, you know, we're, we're coming up against 25, 30 kilo charges at a time. Um, it's not going to do anything. So also you've got to wear it in the heat, carry it around. That's just not practical. So we were operating very light. Um, you know, the the types of devices and things that are in that movie, yeah, sure. There's um, yeah, The reality is you're you're fighting against an enemy that's got both time and resources to think of interesting and wonderful ways to try and kill you um, using whatever they've got. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's like a superheated game of chess at times. You really need to understand your enemy, understand what resources they have access to, understand how they use them in the battle space. I mean, in the environment um, and, and use everything within your capacity to try and find, identify and make safe those devices before they go off. Um, the other mm -hmm. part of being an EOD technician is um, post-blast. So a lot of the sort of uglier side of what I and my colleagues did in Afghanistan was uh, arriving to blast locations um, after the incidents occurred and where, you know, bagging and tagging, picking up bits and pieces of our mates or innocent civilians caught in the crossfire um, and and trying to identify parts and componentry to explosive uh, devices so that we can better understand the enemy and better fight against the threat. But the reality is that IED threat was the largest killer of Australian and coalition forces throughout Afghanistan. So we were very, very busy um, and it was often a very confronting job you know, to, to turn up to sites where innocent women and children have been torn apart, your friends and colleagues have been killed or, or maimed, um, and, and making sure that you keep your cool, do your job well, and um, keep the battle space moving. I, I didn't realise that piece about, you know, the suits and that, like you see the suits and, you know, I didn't realise that uh, just for me, like one kilo at one metre, but you're looking at something like, you know, it's 25, 30, 50 times the power. So basically you're out there in your cams, maybe your body armor to protect you from small yeah. arms or anything out there. So the same yeah. as what everybody else is using. Same wearing. as what everyone else is using. We, we got some really uh, high-tech tools like a yeah. prodder, which is essentially a, a stick. <laughs> stick, yeah. <laughs> the, the technical the term. <laughs> yeah. uh, which is a fantastic bit of kit. A paintbrush often yeah. to try and uncover paintbrush. devices. Uh, mine detectors, um, we use other things like hook lines, pulleys, um, you know, a, an incredible asset that we used a lot over there is uh, explosive detection dogs. They're yeah. just amazing, life-saving um, parts of our team. You know, the, but the, uh, the reality is it's a, it's a difficult job. It, it was very demanding on the, the mind, the body and the spirit and um, mm. at times became... Uh, I'd say overwhelming for many people, yeah. but um, I, can, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, if I can just go back to come forward again, is I remember when I first let a claymore off, you know, an RMC, <laughs> you know, like this little, you know, the little thing that goes bang and throws lots of ball bearings. Hopefully, if you got it the right direction, it face other way or something, yeah, whatever yeah. it says face on the front toward of it. enemy. Face yeah. towards enemy, you know. Um, but like when you're holding something like that in your hands and it's real and you're in the training environment, uh, obviously everything is very controlled. There is no room for accidents within the Australian domestic worth health, worth health, work, health and safety environment. But like when you're 
Can you share what it was like to be at your first device for the first time doing it for real? Like, could you set the scene? Oh, yeah. Was it dusty road? I can remember it really well. At this stage of 2008, we were operating out of the back of vehicles and um, one of the searchers up front had found uh, or had an identification um, in a in a vulnerable point and marked it and called us up. And I just remember thinking, okay, it's game time. And so can I grab you there first, sorry? When we're talking yeah. a searcher, we're talking yeah. a combat engineer. Combat engineer, yeah. Private, oh, sorry, in the ranks. Um, yeah. And that yeah. person right. is out the front probably. So so can you just share the searcher's role? Because these this is really. Hey, these really are the guys. They're, they're the workhorse of, of yeah. Afghanistan. I mean, these are the people that were literally out the front of every patrol, whether we were mounted, dismounted. They're the guys swinging mine laps looking for sign, looking for uh, signs of disturbed ground, anything that might indicate um, that the enemy's placed an IED on our path. And their job is literally to find the device before it kills them or someone behind them. Um, so these guys honestly did, in my opinion, the hardest job in Afghanistan, day in, day out, getting the strength and courage to continue to get up, walk out the front, knowing that their next step may be their last. Um we lost a lot of engineers during uh, our campaign in Afghanistan and many more were injured uh, as a result of the high risk uh, of that job. But um, these guys were amazing, mate. So their job was literally to find, uh, on occasion, they would uh, make safe or, or blow in place, but predominantly um, would call EOD assets forward to um, to render safe the device. Yeah. There's, it, there's a term in the Army, individual experiences vary in like, and, you know, as I've said on this many times before, my Afghan experience revolved around a bed in a safe place with a hot cup of coffee and, and a piece of yellow cake every day, but which is like a little fancy piece of cake from the cafe, nothing fancy like explosives or anything. But the particularly my uh, drop jaw amazement of particularly the infantry and the combat engineer soldiers who were on patrol every day is just something that gives me chills to think about to this day. Like while the infantry are out there patrolling and looking for the threat, the combat engineers are just, you know, these lads and are just walking out front protecting everybody. It's just, it is mind blowing me the day in day out courage that these, you know, that these soldiers went through. Yeah, so absolutely. your, so your first experience um, we've got a combat engineer soldier found something, and basically you're on the car like, I think the only word for it might be like, fuck, game on. Like, yeah, yeah, it's shit. game time. It's and real. I remember just taking a couple of deep breaths, um, leaning over, having a chat to my number two, getting the searcher up the back of the vehicle, him doing a handover and thinking, okay, let's do this. What do we got? How do I do it? And honestly just went into um, automatic mode really i knew my job well and it was just a matter of process so uh the the big thing with eod is think then act think then act never act first yeah. and think later um so it was just a process of putting that in place but i still remember even though this safe lane had been marked with paint um i'm walking down with my mind lab and i was taking extra care and caution to double check before I'm walking down a safe lane. And I'm thinking, you know, I probably don't need to do this, but everything in me is saying don't <laughs> trust anyone else, yeah. only trust your own um, processes. So it, I always had that sort of layer of safety um, 
but I knew time is always of the essence. Time over target's bad. You've got an enemy potentially going to shoot you while you're out the front. Um, you know, there's all sorts of considerations. I remember even being on one job getting mortared. I was lying on my gut, digging out mines, and then we were copping mortars under the top. It was like, well, what do I do here? This is a really shit sandwich. I can either stay here and hope that I don't get killed by mortars or I get up and run through a potential minefield. Um, I got up and ran and jumped in the back of a vehicle about 50 metres away. But, um, you know, you run into these situations and circumstances where you think, how are you going to react? What are you going to do? And it's training. Everything comes down to training. Like I had trained, I knew my job, and and it just kicks in. So you don't have to second guess. But the 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 thing that stuck in my mind was after I'd completed that job, I went to the back of the vehicle sat down, lit up a cigarette and just let out this like, yeah, like I did it and I'm still alive. That's freaking amazing. It was like almost like I can't believe it. It's it's done. Yeah. And that first job was the hardest. Like every job is different. No two jobs are the same. But once I'd done that first one, it gave me the confidence in my own ability to respond and react to whatever the circumstances were and, um you know, I carried that through multiple deployments and was able to um, achieve that well. And I came home with all my bits. So, yeah, you know, I was doing all right. I was winning. Can you share with me that what that first job was? It something buried? Was it something in a box in a bucket? Yeah, you know, the, 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 the yeah, it was a box? it was a pretty standard um, pressure plate device. So uh, a palm oil container containing about fifteen to twenty kilos of explosive, placed in the me- middle of the road. Offset to that was a uh, a pressure plate, and offset to that was a a bunch of batteries, um, which acted as a power source. And the pressure plate would complete a circuit, fire off a detonator, and blow up a twenty to uh, fifteen to twenty kilo charge under the belly of a, of a vehicle. So it's designed to kill vehicles and the occupants of those vehicles. When we're talking about offset here, um, I just want to sort of lay the picture out for people that. Um, just to sort of share the scene here. So you've got a device which triggers a circuit, but the actual explosive itself could be several meters away, forward, behind, to the left, to the right. And yeah. there's quite a lot of art of deception, particularly of the, from the enemy's perspective as they evolved about how these devices were set to basically trick you to have secondary effects in all sorts of different things. Um, can you just share a little bit about how these devices actually worked and uh, a little bit of setting the scene? Um, look, I won't go into too much, like tactics, techniques and procedures of the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's stuff that, you know, we, we don't really want to talk about um, yep. for obvious reasons. But to set the scene, I mean, the enemy has, he doesn't have an infinite amount of resources, right? So mm-hmm. the resources that he does has, have, he wants to make sure they are used effectively and can target the enemy. Often they're not trying to kill people. They're often trying to just maim people because it takes more people out of the battle space. If I can maim a person, well, I'll take three people out of the fight. If I kill someone, I'll take one person out of the fight. So, um, you know, there's all these different considerations for what they're targeting, whether it's um, dismounted patrols, so they're going to use more fragmentation devices. If they're using, if they're targeting uh, up-armoured vehicles, they're going to use big blast um, charges uh, to try and penetrate that armour and and, um, and disable the vehicle and kill the occupants. So... Um, but but really it comes down to a knowledge of the ground, how to effectively target someone. So if you were, for example, in your home 
um, and I observed you going in and out of your house for a week, I would say that you would use the same path every day. Um, You may use a separate path once or twice, but realistically, most people are are creatures of habit. So if I wanted to target you, I would target you on that path that you take every day in and out of your home. So it's just thinking about where is the most effective place I can place a device to get the desired outcome. They're not just going to put devices randomly throughout the desert, right? They're going to place them in areas that they know we go to. Um, And so I won't go into detail about that, but essentially it's just being smart. And so you need to think like the enemy. If I was the enemy, where would I place a device? So that's the first thing that's going to give away a potential location. That's an area where you're going to slow down and really start to search, right? Because you can't search an entire freaking country. Slow down, choke points. Yeah, choke points, that sort of thing, vulnerable points. So uh, crossing points, all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, that's the sort of scene that we were faced with over there and that changed over the, the course of deployments and over the course of years where we went from predominantly mounted operations working out the back of um, of Bushmasters, which are an incredible vehicle that saved a lot of Australian lives, to uh, predominantly dismounted operations or, or helo insertion operations. So, um, you know, it, it, it changed a lot and we had to adapt to what the enemy was providing. Like we went from the, the, the tactics being used by the enemy in one area were completely different in another area. So you needed to understand who the enemy was in the location that you were going to and understand what the types of devices that we were going to come across and then adapt the way we operated. So now you've got this first job out the way, how many jobs did you do over multiple deployments? Oh, mate, um, be over 40 um, separate jobs, um, you know, main IED jobs. But when, when you're looking at all other types of jobs like demolition of UXO and things like that where you just blow and shit up, uh, damaged stock, old stock, you know, it's hundreds. So, yeah. um, you know, the job varies. But, yeah, we, we had a, a lot of missions and um, and the guys were very busy. Now, the I think there's a, you know, there's a couple of things that really uh, are classical about the Afghanistan campaign. It is the the weight that two large bodies took, the, the special forces, task groups and, and the work that they did, um, plus the combat engineers, not not dismissing any other groups, but just broadly from, you know, what characterizes a war and experience. Uh, the combat engineers um, took a lot of casualties. Um, are you mm. able to share, like, during your deployment, did you have soldiers that were, that were hurt, killed or injured during your trips? Yeah, during every trip we had, um, we lost soldiers, we lost friends, um, and the predominant way that those guys were lost was through um, direct action with uh, the enemy with IED. Um, the other big threat that we faced over there was what we call blue on green, um, yep. where, you know, you're working with partner forces like the Afghan National Army and Afghan National Police. And uh, unfortunately, during our later deployments back end of 2011 and 2012, the major threat shifted from IEDs to being shot in the back by uh, our partner forces being the Afghan National Army. And um, it was horrible. That changed the entire battle space. It, it went from feeling safe inside your fob or your um, your outpost or your, your, um, your position where you were to not even feeling safe inside the wire. So 
um, yeah, it, it was a really destructive turn of events where the enemy had actually infiltrated the Afghan National Army and were using those individuals to, to kill us when we were most vulnerable, whether it was sitting down to have a brew with your mate. Uh, you know, there was an incident where uh, three three Australians were killed on parade and they'd formed up uh, and, and, you know, this guy had opened up with a, a heavy machine gun and into a crowd of Australians that were forming up for a parade to, to have a chat with the boss and... Um, you know, it's just horrific. It just really, that period, I remember, really started to impact a lot of us. It meant that, you know, you were on when you were outside the wire and you were you could switch off and kind of relax when you came home um, or back into your, your secure area. Um, that shifted. There was no off time. So all, all of a sudden this heightened level of... Um, you know, anticipation and and uh, being on guard went from sort of just for the periods where you were on patrol to the entire duration of your deployment. Um, you weren't even necessarily safe when you were sleeping. So, um, yeah, I remember that significantly uh, impacting a lot of people, including myself. Uh, I was training Afghan National Army EOD guys um, to do these jobs and we were on patrols with them, getting into contacts um, together, you know, uh, and I started to think, well, what if we're in an assault shooting toward an enemy and this guy's behind me, he might just take a crack at me and shoot, shoot me in the back of the head. You know, these sorts of, <laughs> this sort of level of thinking was was increasing and, and it just was so destructive. Uh, and, you know, in saying that, I worked with some incredible Afghan National Army EOD guys. I mean, we trained up a guy who I saw in a newspaper uh, a few years after coming home. I think it was around 2015, 16. And we, we knew many of these guys that we were training weren't going to survive long. I mean, the average lifespan for an EOD technician in the Afghan National Army was about six months. Um, there was this one guy, he was incredibly bright. He was an engineer graduate uh, from university in Kabul. Um, he had a real desire to understand his job and, mate, I saw this interview with him uh, years later and he was still alive, which really, like, oh, I couldn't believe it. I thought, this is fantastic. And uh, he was, he'd become almost a hero status over there um, where he'd done so many jobs. Everyone knew him. The Taliban had put a huge price on his head, which was pretty common. Um, and, you know, he was kicking goals. I, I often think, you know, Post our drawdown and the absolute debacle of um, of the withdrawal in Afghanistan, what happened to guys like that? You know, mm -hmm. who who committed their lives to fighting with us against the Taliban. You know, their, their families, and it, it's pretty horrific when you think about uh, even the interpreters and stuff that we worked with on a daily basis. And yeah, it's a pretty sad state of affairs to know that these guys were basically left out to dry, hang left out. Uh, in the dry and just running for their lives from uh, the Taliban that's now in control of Afghanistan. Yeah, look, it's those iconic pictures of the withdrawal will, you know, sit with all of us, you know, like we had the the Iroquois or the Hueys pushed off the back of ships after Vietnam, the iconic pictures of the C-17 taking off out of Kabul airport, will, you know, will stick with all of us. Yeah, I just want to share, like, okay, in the start of this, we were talking about your role as a tactical operator 
versus uh, the leadership role. When you have these incidents um, on site, how do you break apart the human reaction of dealing with your own safety, with the threat that's and that's happening right there in front of you, with being a leader and resolving the issue at hand and bringing everybody together to move on to the next job? Because this is really what being an officer in this trade is about. Yeah. For me, it all comes down to training, man, discipline, yep. um, train hard, fight easy. So it became second nature. I used to do this thing where I just put anything I was worrying about or second guessing I put to the back of my head and refused to open the door on it. Um, I remember a particular incident in 2008 uh, where Sean McCarthy was killed. He was a signals operator um, with the Special Air Service Regiment and um, in the back of a, a light armoured um, uh, vehicle that was struck by an IED and we got called out and um, and cleared that site and, and uh, collected evidence and the bodies and things. And I remember um, as a team we were walking around and we'd secured the area, cleared any secondary devices and then picking up bits of our mates and putting them in a bag and uh, it, it was it was interesting, you know. It was it was pretty tough. I remember looking around at one of my um, my team, and he was kind of dazed. And I was like, "Mate, sort your shit out. Got a job to do. Um, there's no time to to think about this. Just freaking do your job." And um, that was sort of a necessary way that I dealt with the stresses and pressures of that operation. Um, Unfortunately, I don't think as a commander um, I helped my soldiers enough post-incident where, you know, back at the patrol base where there's time to calm down, where we'd have detailed chats about the incident, how you're feeling, how you're coping. I kind of assumed everyone would do the same thing I was doing, which was just put it to the back of your head and not look at it and just crack on with the job and sort of, you know, just override any any stress or, or anxiety or fear that was coming up from these incidents. And um, what I realised later was not everyone operates that way and I started to see um, post-traumatic stress um, symptoms appearing in, in many people over, overseas during that period and I struggled to understand why. I thought, what's wrong with you, you know, just sort your shit out, get mm. on with it. Um, and I actually saw it as a weakness and, you know, I'm not proud to say, but I I, I judged them. I just thought, oh, you're freaking useless. But, you know, you got a job to do, you can't do it. We've got to find someone else. Um, it was interesting. I, I suffered from a few weird symptoms after my first deployment. Like I'd come home, sort of getting back into life in Australia was difficult. Um, I'd, I'd have a lot of nightmares, um, reliving events, reliving jobs, uh, seeing dead people, that sort of thing. And I started to get concerned that I was starting to have some of these issues that I saw as a weakness that, yeah. and I just went, nah, sort your shit out. And I just put myself so heavily into the workplace. Like my family came second. By this time we had a couple of young kids. Um, Zoe was sole parenting basically and I was just either deploying or preparing to deploy or preparing others to deploy 
Um, and the military was my number one focus over family and everything else. And that's the way I got through that. And then multiple deployments later, it was only after my um, last deployment where I came home in 2012 and my wife said, um, right, it's time to make a decision. It's us or the military. And she just gave it to me, said, look, I can't do this anymore. Um, you're always away. It's too much stress on the family. You you need to choose us or them. And that was difficult, man. That was a really hard decision for me because I was I loved the army. I loved my job. My career was going really well. Um, and to leave it at that point, I don't think I was ready. But I loved my wife and I loved my kids. Um, I just wasn't committed to them in the same way I was to the military because it, it demanded so much. Um, but I made a decision. I said, right, babe, I'm going to do this. So I put in my discharge, uh, started looking for work and immediately got poached by a uh, civilian company. There's not that many sort of qualified um, counterterrorism EOD experts uh, in the in the world. So uh, straight into a good-paying job. But it was interesting. I, I just was doing this job and I didn't have the motivation that I had in the military. Like there was a real purpose behind why I served it was for from a position of patriotism um, and ultimately it came down to wanting to protect my fellow mates, you know, yeah. and, and look, look after each other. And I believed in the goodness of what we were trying to achieve, um, whereas now I was just working for cash. And it didn't carry the same purpose-driven um, sort of desires to fill my my soul. And I was just kind of going through the motions. And I ended up, started suffering quite badly from more of these uh, nightmares, which developed into hallucinations. And um, I, I started to develop a lot of stress where my body would get stress rashes on my arms and on my, my torso. Um, all these symptoms sort of associated with PTSD. And um, I started drinking very heavily to try and cope with that, to try and sleep. Um, and ultimately, uh, after about six months in this new role, I had a um, complete psychological meltdown and uh, I crashed and I crashed hard. Um, I found myself in a psych ward in Corumban. I was admitted they diagnosed me with um, post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, depression, major depressive disorder, and I thought my life is freaking over. I remember sitting across the desk from a, a doctor, a psychologist, psychiatrist, and him saying, you're going to be like this for the rest of your life. All we can do is offer you some different drugs and medications to try and calm you down. And I remember thinking... F you, man, like that's a death sentence. There's no hope here. Um, it really, I really, really struggled with this concept of being told I was finished. I was no good to, to society, my country anymore. I was going to be the post-traumatic um, person for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, I, I really struggled with suicidal ideation through that period. Um, really struggled with not being able to provide for my wife and my kids. I was no longer able to pay the mortgage, um, put food on the table. Uh, I kind of felt like I'd failed as a man and, uh, yeah, just reached the bottom of myself. But it was during that period that um, I had to get to the bottom, mate. Like 
things started to turn around. I had an incredibly strong wife. Like Zoe is a rock and she just refused to give up on me. I came up with this plan that if I could just upset her enough, I'd, I'd convince her to leave me. And then that would be my green ticket to um, to go and end that, my life. That would resolve you of it. If that you like, well. Yeah. I'd be going, well, you left me, so it's all good now. I can go and kill myself. Yeah. Um, she was incredible. She just didn't give up on me. And um, she stuck by me. Uh, I'd started to um, develop faith over the last few years of my career. I wasn't raised um, with any particular um, faith. I was raised as a sort of nominal Catholic, go to church at Easter and Christmas, but didn't really have a relationship with God or anything. But there was a few instances on operations where I thought I was going to die and I thought about praying to to God and, um, you know, I didn't really know who God was, but I thought, well, if I'm going to die, I better get good right with you now. Uh, and that sort of developed. My wife had been raised a Christian and she had a very strong faith and I'd, I'd seen how um, how that Faith had carried her through really difficult circumstances in life. And so witnessing that, I started to lean more into it. And I remember I was actually in that psych ward in Corumban Clinic and there was a Bible there and I wasn't one to read the Bible. You know, I just hadn't really considered it. I remember flicking through it years ago and thought this book contradicts itself a lot. Mm. But I was like, I picked up this Bible and I opened it and uh, I opened it to a page. It was a verse, 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. It said, you are not made with a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of sound mind. And I laughed out loud. Mm. I thought this is the exact opposite of my life. Power, I'd lost my job, couldn't pay the mortgage, couldn't put food on the table. Uh, love, I'd lost the ability to love my children. I just wanted, had no empathy for anyone or anything. I didn't want to be around the world. And sound mind, I was literally locked up in a psych ward. So uh, I remember laughing and just thinking, this is ridiculous. And I had a really sort of angry conversation with God. And I said, look, if you're real, you you better show me because I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I want to die. Um, and I didn't have like a some immaculate, incredible revelation of, of um, God's love for me. But what happened was I kind of, I, I feel like I was able to slow my mind in the darkest period of my life and see a little bit of hope, just mm. this glimmer of hope, this idea that, hang on, what if what God's word is saying about you is true? rather than what the world is saying about you is true. Because the world was telling me I was broken. I would never never overcome it and I was done. But God's word was saying I'm made with power and love and sound mind. So it started a really interesting relationship between me and God and reading the Bible and praying and, and taking time to find my peace, uh, learning how to breathe, be present, not worrying about the future, not worrying about the past, but just being in the moment. And um, I had some incredible support through that time. I had my, my family, but also I had a community of people around me. Started going to church. This pastor would turn up to my house and we'd go surfing. And I yep. found a great level of peace uh, in the surf and in the ocean. Um, I, I had my faith, which grounded me. And um, I started to find healing in, in the strangest of places. I had a guy take me uh, 
horse horse riding and and that broke down some of these difficulties I had with empathy and engaging with people um this relationship that I was building with a horse sort of allowed me to communicate again and it was phenomenal and I'm so thankful for that period of my life but I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy it was five years of freaking hell and um I remember I was seeing a a Christian counsellor at the time and he said to me, mate, I want you to um, write down some of your traumas. And I thought, okay. He said, look, writing things down can be a really good way, a cathartic experience of sort of getting stuff out of your head and onto paper and, and transitioning to letting it go. And I thought that's a, that's a good idea. So I started writing stuff down. I was on a lot of meds for, for these years, you know, horrible med cycle of uppers, downers, um, SSR, oh, what are they? antipsychotics and all sorts of stuff. Um, it was pretty horrendous, but I got clarity and I started to write. And uh, Zoe and I were sort of talking, but our relationship was still really rocky through this period because she was living with an alcoholic PTSD sufferer yeah. um, and trying to sort of protect the kids from my erratic mood, mood swings and, and, and chaos in the home that I was bringing. And she was trying to really be a, a solid rock. And so she was reading what I was writing and saying, no, nah, that's not right. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Go and write your own story. And so she's like, okay, I will. So she started writing too. And it became this really cool way where we started to communicate. Um, little did we know that, that what we wrote, which we both thought were going to be just a story for our family, maybe explain to the kids why mum and dad were the way they are. Um, we were encouraged to put it into a book and, and put it out into the world. Now, that idea freaked me out because it was just raw, brutal, like undies on the line, mate. Everything yeah. was in there. Um, talking about, you know, spiritual experiences or the whole walk. Um, but I was witnessing at the time this massive surge in veteran suicide. Um, and I just thought what I've just walked through and I've found the ability to, to want to live um, and, and overcame that suicidal ideation. If I can help just one person, then it's worth putting this book out. So we did. We put out a book called Resurrected, A Story of Hope. Um, your listeners can get that on our website. But um, it's basically just a, a, a really raw look at the impact of PTSD, not only on a veteran and a soldier, but on a family. And I think that's a, the critical point here is often we hear stories about veterans and the impact of PTSD on their lives, but rarely do you hear it from the perspective of the partner. And for every sufferer, there is a, there is a support person, a partner um, in the background holding them up and that are critical in them overcoming their, their journey of mental health. So, I think Zoe's voice is so important and that that book ended up taking us on a little journey. We ended up in the States doing a book tour and uh, sort of presenting our testimony on bases and around churches and all sorts of different areas. Um, I remember actually before we went, a couple of years prior, Zoe actually had a vision. She came to me so excited. She said, I, I see God show me everything's going to be okay. You're going to be sharing your testimony in America. And I looked at her and thought, you're insane. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm literally sitting here thinking about ending my life and you're talking about 
sharing a testimony, which I didn't even know what that was, to a bunch of people in America in another country. Sure enough, um, you know, a few, li- few years later, there I was uh, sharing my testimony of hope and overcoming PTSD with um, with hundreds of people in America. And as we travelled around, we kept hearing about this course called Reboot Combat Recovery. And uh, we ended up getting in touch with these guys. They were in Nashville, Tennessee, and went down and met them. And they showed us this program they'd written. See, everything, when I decided I wanted to live, I thought I'm going to do everything I can to, to, to learn what I need to learn to overcome PTSD. So I started doing all these courses and some of them were great, some of them were helpful, but a lot of them weren't addressing the, the deeper moral issues of some of the stuff that I was struggling with, things like unforgiveness of myself and others, um, guilt, shame. How do I deal with shame? Like um, suicidal ideation, um, you know, all of these sort of deeper emotional scars, moral injuries that I'd suffered from war and my experience, none of these courses were answering that. When we got to America and we're talking to these guys, they literally laid out this course and it was written as a 12-week course, something like a Alcoholics Anonymous type thing. You know, you turn up once a week, share a meal and do an hour study. And each of these lessons was looking at the root causes of trauma. See, everything that I was addressing was symptomatic. I want to address the alcoholism. I want to address the anger. I want to address um, the, the lack of sleep. Um, but all of these things were just symptoms of a deeper problem. The deeper problem was soul wounds. My, my soul was wounded, and I needed to understand how to do that. And this, this course stepped through session by session what we as a family had taken five years to achieve. And it was a 12-week course. And I said, guys, this is incredible. I need to take this to Australia. They said, take it. We're, with our blessing, we want you to give it to the world. Uh, so we brought it back to Australia, ran our first course in 2017 at Yeah. And, um, mate, we created, we thought we just need to get this course out there. It's make it free to everyone. I approached a heap of different organisations. No one wanted to touch it because it was, a course that was founded in Christian biblical uh, healing, and yep. that scared a lot of people off with a you know religious connotations. The funny thing is, the course is not religious at all. I tell people I'm not religious. Um, I think religions for people that don't want to go to hell, and spiritualities for people that have already been there. I'm definitely spiritual. Um, I think every human on the planet is. We're mind, body, and spirit. So we need to address the mind, the body, and the spirit when we're looking at healing, if we're going to be holistic. It's like a three-legged stool. If you only address two of them and one's missing, well, the thing's going to fall over. And that's really what the Reboot courses do. And so we ended up creating a charity called PTSD Resurrected. Um, And for the next few years, um, just started delivering these courses free to the veteran and service community. Um, Over that time, I've witnessed so much healing people that were absolutely broken had multiple suicide attempts were on the edge of taking their lives having been completely restored restored marriages restored health back into the community working loving life and the reason for that is um these courses showed them a pathway to healing that they weren't aware of or didn't have access to um so i found my purpose again uh, in delivering 
this training and the knowledge and sharing that with uh, the community. In the last two years, we've actually taken that course from where we started supporting veterans and first responders to now supporting the wider community. So we support anyone with trauma and we see a lot of people with domestic violence, childhood sexual trauma, um, drug and alcohol abuse trauma, victims of crime, and we just help these people by running these courses. So we now run uh, intensive programs over three days um, where people can come in, join us, do the program uh, with a core of uh, facilitation staff who are all people with lived experience. So we're peer-supported programs, and that's one of the keys to why it's so successful. Our courses have been independently reviewed by uh, various medical organisations in, in the overseas and here in Australia. Uh, Gallipoli Medical Research Foundation studied us. We've had various psychologists, psychiatrists review these programs and go, wow, like the results you're getting are five, six, seven times better than some of the other treatment methods that we're achieving or, or treatment modalities. That Why is that? And I, well, I know why. It's um, God's in it. And it shows people a pathway to healing that works. Um, we're addressing. Are all, are all the courses based on the Gold Coast? Are they all physical courses that you attend? No. So when COVID started, we we went um, to an online uh, delivery method. Um, so now we deliver both face-to-face -face and online courses around the country. Um, we, we support the entire country. So we go to where um, people need us. We've gone to... Victoria, Adelaide, um, Tasmania. Uh, we just got back recently from delivering a course in Townsville. Um, you know, we're, we're delivering them sort of all over the place and in that online environment, and we've even gone overseas. So we've delivered this program in Belfast, <laughs> which is a, an interesting area, a lot of trauma there. Um, we've delivered a course in uh, Wales in, uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, we've delivered a course in England. And we're getting ready actually next week. Uh, a team of four of us are delivering a course in South Africa. So, you know, there's a huge demand. Um, we're a very small charity. We are a DGR charity. So that is a deductible gift recipient. So anyone that wants to donate to us, any, it's, uh, any donation over $2 is fully tax deductible, which is an amazing uh, blessing to have because we don't charge anything for our courses. So we don't have an income coming into the charity. Um, what we do do is rely on the generosity of the community and we do fundraising events. So we do that to provide these courses completely free to the people in the community that need them. It's amazing. And just looking at the, uh, I dare say, like a U-shape of the hour that was spent together from being you now excited soldier into Duntroon. Yeah, I want to go to E&D, EOD through the Afghanistan journey. And, uh, and dare I say that, the pits of hell that you've been through in terms of those real life, real lived experiences through to this back up the other side. Um, interestingly, if uh, for those on YouTube or watching this, just put your arm up like for the, for the tap, <laughs> like resurrected is, this is what it's all about here in terms of going somewhere and actually coming back through the other side. And this is what we, you know, what we really need out there. Veteran community doesn't, you know, own the PTSD story. You know, it's this no. is a community-wide thing. One of the things that I've really picked up in, in listening to you um, is it's quite boggling to me that someone who has probably done the ultimate, you know, male job, like 
stepping into environments where uh, death is at a fingertip away so many times, like the courage, the resilience, the, the, the heroicism that you went to this place of feeling a failure, like when you've got a failure as a man where you've done the most manly, masculine things a human could nearly ever achieve. Um, and I just want to ask one thing about PTSD because someone told me a while back, PTSD stands for post-team separation disorder. And that whilst you're in the military it, and you're in that structure and you had the team, things were maybe bandaged or patched or pushed to the back of your head, not resolved. But when that team disappeared and you went on your own, that's when a lot of this happened. I just want to, yeah. can you unpack that team bit? Because the people yeah, are teams, to step into teams this space. Important. Um, yeah, when I left the military, I definitely felt separation from my community, the people I loved and trusted even to keep me alive. Um, the interesting part of that is when I started to suffer, I wasn't prepared to go to them and speak yeah. about it. I had this um, preconception that PTSD was a weakness and it only impacted people that were weak of mind. Um the reality is very different to that and thankfully you know the the view culturally of what ptsd is has changed dramatically over the last few years um, but at that time I, I wouldn't even ask i wouldn't talk to anyone about it i remember um being suicidal and not talking to anyone about it until i found the courage one day to speak to my wife and and i shared with zoe babe i'm, I'm actually considering taking my life now that was the most difficult decision conversation i'd ever had in my life like i'll walk down on 10 IEDs before having that conversation again that was yeah. horrendous um but it opened up a communication pathway and what i found was every time i actually found the courage to speak about this stuff all i got back was not condemnation not ridicule not not judgment but love like the people in my life and in my community wanted me to succeed wanted me to overcome wanted me to be empowered and wanted to help and that's the reality that the lies that we listen to in our own heads, we can't trust. You can't trust your emotion. Um, what you can trust is that if you are struggling, then you need to reach out, um, share your story, have a conversation with someone that is close to you because this stuff is too hard to do alone. The reason that we have such high suicide rates in the service community is because people don't talk about it. Yeah. Um, the, the, the biggest prevention for suicide is conversation, like just having that conversation and saying, look, I'm struggling or this is what I'm going through. I need some help. It's okay to do that. It's not a, a um, you know, it, it's not a negative thing and it, and it, it has to be seen as a, as a thing of strength um, and courage. And I just encourage any of your listeners, mate, if people are out there hearing this and thinking, you know, I, I have been struggling for a long time and I've been doing it quietly and silently, you don't have to do this alone. Life is not meant to be a solo journey. We are meant to do it in community, in tribe and supporting one another. You know, I've got so many close mates now, both veteran community and, and uh, civilian community, because I open my heart up to having those relationships I stopped closing myself off to the world and life is so much richer for it. I'm a better father today than I ever was even pre-PTSD. Having gone through the journey of PTSD has made me into a better person. I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. I'm a better community member. 
and I'm enjoying my life. And the reality is a diagnosis of PTSD is not a death sentence. It is not a terminal illness. It can be overcome. It takes a lot of hard work and a lot of fight, but you don't need to do it alone. I just want to recognize your ultimate team member. I've never met Zoe, but she was always there sort of waiting for you to sort of reconnect with that team, you know, and um, for anyone else out there, you know, go back to your military mates. They are just a phone call away and you'll be, even though they've moved on to their journey for them, it feels like you're at a different posting, you know, like in the military, we're so used to just going on the next posting, the next course, the next new mates, your former military mates are on their next thing doesn't mean they've forgotten about you or anything. They're just on to the next distraction. And all yeah, they're probably right. just waiting for that next phone call to reach out and say day because we know that we've got those mates that are the next time we connect, it'll be just like yesterday anyway. So don't be afraid to reach out. Mate, I want to just um, talk about PTSD Resurrected. It's a great little business that is your purpose now and, and to be able to guide and share and support those who've been through your journey and, and what an example you are for those. Um, but you've got some pretty cool events that you actually do to become a part of. Tell us about the Masquerade Ball. Yeah, we uh, we run a major fundraiser every year called the Masquerade Ball. It's, uh, it's a great night. We had an amazing uh, uh, event last year. It's, you know, an opportunity to come together and celebrate in the community. Um, it also gives an opportunity for us as a charity to reach out to the corporate world um, where we partner with businesses uh, that are like-minded, that share um, a desire to help the people in the community that are suffering from mental health issues. So um, it's a great event. Um, you can see the details of that on our website. Uh, we're, we're just in the starting processes of of getting it ready for the next year or for, for later this year. What's the date to that? Oh, we're, looking at mid, mid, we're at mid-July now. I'm looking at your website. We've got the 18th of um, May next year for the next yeah. gala. Um, that's where, right. That's on May. the Gold Coast? Yeah, on the Gold Coast. We hold it uh, and we're holding it the same location next year in the Home of the Arts, the Hotter yep. Building. Fantastic location. Overlooks the lake and the, the cityscape behind. Um, we'll have incredible uh, band and dancing and, uh, you know, auctions and, and giveaways and all that sort of thing. So just a really good night to come together as a community and celebrate the work that we do, but also um, share life and, and enjoy some time together. It's always good to put on a penguin soup and have the girls frock yeah. up for the day, uh, you know, in, in an environment where you're going to have a great time and meet a lot of people. And I know that I'll be definitely getting a table and, and taking, uh, you know, some friends and family up for that event. Um, Wonderful. Okay. So if for someone who's interested in getting onto one of your courses, uh, let's just talk about how do you get involved or if you feel that PTSD resurrected is something for you, what's the best way we can learn about your programs? Yeah, the best way is just go straight to our website, www.rebootau.org. So R-E-B-O-O-T-A-U dot O-R-G. Um, on there, there's a whole bunch of videos and information about the program, um, what you can expect. You don't need anything. There's no cost. We provide everything that you require. Um, there's some links there that show you upcoming courses, both online and face-to-face, and you can just register through those links. So the important thing I wanted to note here is not just for the sufferer, mate. So we support the sufferer, also the support person. So if you've got someone um, who's your rock in your life, your partner, maybe uh, maybe that, that special relationship with someone who's always there for you, 
this is an opportunity for them as well. The reality is um, a lot of our carers or our support people suffer uh, a great deal living with someone with PTSD or depression and anxiety. Um, you can't live in the same house or have a relationship with someone with the, with PTSD and not be impacted by it. So we support the support people as well. And what that does is it improves the, the understanding of the condition. It also brings people closer together and puts them on the same page so that they communicate better, they can overcome uh, struggles and issues when they arise as a team and ultimately succeed. So that's what we want. We want people to, um, to not just... Um, overcome, but we want them to thrive. And we also, you know, um, we do what we do and then we uh, partner with other organisations to get support um, post the course. So it's about bringing people together in community and then that community ongoingly helping one another. Um, and then we refer to other programs like, for example, drug and alcohol abuse or um, uh, maybe marriage dysfunction or other programs like Survive to Thrive where they can uh, work on their personal skills. There's there's so many partners uh, with us that that do amazing work in growing and learning and, and overcoming to, to really live a productive, happy and healthy life. So, again, you're, you're offering this. Uh, there's no cost for this for people to get on board. And that obviously uh, it doesn't mean that what you have to do is uh, doesn't come without its costs. I just wanted you to have a chance here to shout out to your current sponsors that are supporting you in this program. And then uh, I guess it's the same way. Anyone who's interested in supporting uh, Reboot, PTSD Resurrected as initiative, as well as Andy's work, um, how do they get in touch with you and how can they support you? Yeah, sure. So a big shout out to our, our current sponsors, RSL Queensland and Department of Veterans Affairs, who actually support us to run uh, the courses free for all the veteran and veteran community, so veteran partners. Um, without their support, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. We are currently seeking funding support to get these courses to others outside the defence community. We don't currently have a funding stream. So those people, we, we there's a cost of about $2,000 per person per course, um, and we're looking for uh, corporates or, or individuals that align with what we are doing. Uh, to help cover the cost to deliver these programs and um, support the wider community. So we are a deductible gift recipient charity registered with ACNC, um, and so any donation over $2 is fully tax deductible. If you want to have a chat about that, uh, look at what we do with the money and how we support the community, then please get in touch with me. You can email me at info at rebootau.org or get on the website. The contact details are on there. And, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We're definitely at a period where there is a huge growth in demand for the courses. We just need to now meet that with a growth in resources. So we need um, some more financial support. So now is the time. If you're looking for a grassroots charity that needs your help, we are one that you can look at. Absolutely. And, you know, not only supporting that, you can actually support the event itself. And we've got... Homewood, Homewood Highgate, Homewood Highgate. Yeah. yeah, Lenny Alley Studios, uh, yeah. the Pink Flamingo Club and Touring Australia Club. Uh, they're yeah. already on board so that, that you can actually get involved like they have done. Um, at the Absolutely. least, come and grab a table. Come and meet us. Come and hang out with uh, you know, Andy and myself. Um, I'm going to put all of the links to all of this in the show notes so you don't have to worry about writing anything down. Just get on the links below. Um, 
you know, click and comment and share in a likely way. I'd actually love uh, if anyone's out there, particularly get over to YouTube and put any comments into the chat. Um, I'd love to sort of give some Andy some feedback on, uh, yeah. you know, on how you've taken this story. Um, but for me, Andy, it's been, um, this has been a many, many years roller coaster for you. I feel like I've been through a bit of a, a roller coaster in, in the last hour, just listening to your experiences. And uh, just from my personal uh, uh, appreciation and respect, um, thank you for sharing, mate. I'm, I'm a little bit uh, gobsmacked and in, in awe of your ability to share because I know it doesn't come without a personal cost. Oh, my pleasure, Pete. Look, um, you know, I'm driven by helping people. It's service is part of the way God made me. And uh, so when I get to serve others, I get reward. So there's a, there's a lot in this for me. Uh, I, I love living a purpose-driven life and make, witnessing people overcome their trauma and restore their lives, restore their relationships. It's so rewarding. And I wouldn't want to do anything else in the world. So I get to do that alongside my amazing wife and, and we work together with a incredible team now and um it's just a great a great way to uh live life and to give and um and and to see people healed well mate well i'm going to wrap it there you can get in touch with andy all the links below linkedin and all of the other email website contacts will be below uh you know this has been a like just a really um you know inspiring session for me Andy, I appreciate your time, but I'm going to call a wrap on this episode of the Military Mindset for Business pod. Um, Andy Cullen, thank you very much for your time. My name's Pete Liston, and out. Out.